Galatians 5 and Titus 2. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In Titus 2, 1 through 8, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Good morning again. Uh, Some of you might be wondering, wait, didn't we just do a sermon on on, uh, those verses, Uh, the answer to that question is yes, but today we have a uh, a guest preacher in Nick, and um, one of the beautiful things about the scriptures is that we can really, um, we can find so much to mine from one or two verses, Uh, and so today uh, we get to experience that firsthand. Uh, Just a quick word on Nick, and then we're going to have him up here, we're going to pray for him real quick. Nick Bergardis is a, a pastor at Cross of Christ Church in Costa Mesa. It is an Acts 29 church. Um, I've known Nick, actually I realize now, for almost 10 years, which is kind of weird. Uh, three things, anecdotes about Nick that I just want to tell you real quick. First, something that I really appreciate about him is uh, his perspective on the relationship between faith and culture. While I think some people uh, maybe are too quick to reject certain aspects of culture, and while others are too quick to accept it, um, Nick is one of those guys that, that di- dives in and wants to understand the relationship between Christ and culture, and he does a good job of that. And if you ever wanted to hear him do that, you can hear it on the Cross of Christ uh, podcast. The second thing, more personal, is he's also uh, someone that I've sought counsel from uh, time and again over the last 10 years. Matter of fact, I sought counsel from him before asking Kelly to marry me. I don't know if you remember that conversation, conversations. Uh, and something that's great about him is that he's the kind of guy that will like ask you 20 questions before uttering a word of advice. And he does it in such a way where you're like, man, are you asking so that you have clarity or so that I have clarity? So he's like a Jedi mind trick kind of guy when it comes to stuff like that. And the third and most important probably is his affinity for tacos. We were, uh, we were at a, uh, a conference last year and uh, we went to this really good taco shop at like 10 o'clock at night. It was amazing. It was like 10 hours later, early afternoon, and we figure out when lunch is gonna be. And in my head, I'm like, I just want tacos, but like, who am I gonna convince will do the trek with me to go get them again? And in that moment, I get a text from Nick, and he's like, taco lunch? (laughs) To which I responded, you know the way to my heart. Uh, So Nick, come on up, man. Um, And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe just the season you guys are at at Cross of Christ and how we could be praying for you, uh, your family, and your church. Cool. Um, we are kind of going through a, the end of a hard season at church. We transitioned off our worship director off staff, um, and if you've been around church long enough, you know um, that, that just can be really hard. Um, pastoring, you have to wear multiple hats, boss, pastor, friend, um, and navigating that is not always um, the easiest thing to do. 
Um, and so that's been hard, honestly, um, for us. And um, so a little bit of uh, life coming out of that would be really cool. Um, I'm a little bit tired. We've had sick kids all week. Um, and then on top of that, you get this jack-in-the-box annual fun of time, what is it, daylight savings time, right? Saturday night every year, my wife and I are like, oh, no, tomorrow. <laughs> so um, we're, yeah, right now, I'm just feeling, I'm feeling tired coming out of that, that kind of transition with church stuff. Sick kids all week. My wife was starting a graduate program at Concordia this week as well. So I had the kids by myself while they were sick, which is um, hard. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, but thankfully, you know what's rad is like in God's providence, we're doing this. And so uh, Chris is preaching for me at Cross of Christ, and I'm doing this here with you guys. This is a sermon I've preached before, but I revamped it for you all. Chris asked me to preach on self-control because he'd just gone through this Titus 2 passage, and he wanted me to pick on the theme of self-control for you. So I got to do some work on it, but it didn't take up the usual 12 to 15 hours a week of sermon prep, which was nice. So um, I'm thankful. Thankful for that. Yeah. Cool. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you, Lord, for the way that you've gifted Nick, um, a man who um, desires and loves to open your word and expound it for us, God. Um, I thank you for the strength that you've given him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he might be a bit tired and um, uh, hazy now through the time change and the sick kids and the transitions at at church, um, I, I pray as we prayed outside that you would uh, give him clarity, um, power, and confidence, and energy that can only be described as um, from you, Lord. Uh, we also pray for Cross of Christ um, and the individual members that are there, including the people who are coming on and off staff, Lord, um, that you would uh, draw them closer together in the transitionary period, um, and that uh and that, uh, that they would be excited uh, and joyful of this next season, both for the church and for them as individuals. Uh, thank you, Lord, and be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Oscar. Um, yeah, I've known Chris and Alyssa for some time as well, and um, they've just been really sweet and kind and trusted partners in the gospel. Um, it's, uh, as you can tell kind of by what I'm saying, pastoring can be pretty tiring, um, but knowing that you have friends nearby that are laboring as well and giving of themselves for the good of uh, God's people here in Mission Viejo is uh, just life-giving for us. And so um, yeah, Kim and Alyssa got to, t to teach at a Gospel Coalition thing about, what, 18 months, two years ago? Um, and we've gotten to walk with them through some of their own transitions and um, planting of this church. And so it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, let's jump in. Um, I have a neighbor uh, that we love. And our kids love playing with theirs. Uh, we've had them over for dinner. They've come to almost all of our church functions that we do in our neighborhood. We live in Irvine, and right in front of our house is uh, a park, probably like a lot of your neighborhoods here in South County. It's, it's pretty conveniently set up for uh, young families, and there's a little playground 30 feet from my front door. So we constantly have church events there, and this neighbor has been to all of them. Her family's been to all of them. Um, they come to Cross of Christ a couple times a year. They've even given financially, and she's a full-fledged pagan. I mean, she, uh, we're talking like drum circles in the park out front, right? We're, we're talking Burning Man. We're talking in-home yoga classes where at the end of the class, the instructor spits her life force in water over my wife and the other people in attendance. <laughs> is anyone, is that a thing? Is anyone ever, like, my wife never heard of that either. She just went, it was like a Parks and Rec probably situation where you're just like, what just happened? Um, we're, so she's, I mean, full-fledged pagan. Um, but she and I have also had great conversations about the resurrection, 
about Jesus and women and other interesting topics, honestly, I don't find myself having uh, with other Christians. She's thoughtful, she's provocative, she's insightful. Um, and one of her highest values in her, in her life is freedom. And last week, we had a conversation about restraint, about limitations, and actually an interesting aspect of limitations, and that with limitations and self-control, you can actually get to the essence of something. And we were talking about this because she, um, she's a really creative, artistic person, and so she's just been writing haikus for some period of time, like you do, right? But so she's, she's enjoying the, um, the structure of haikus, the limitations it puts on the amount of words you can use, the... Um, uh, the rhythm you can use in your phrasing and things like that. And so she, it's finding, she's finding that in the limitations of the haiku structure, she's getting down to the essence of what she's trying to say. And so we were talking about how that's true. So I brought that up as, as a pastor, kind of maybe like Oscar was alluding to, I wanted to kind of come from the flank a little bit and say, okay, well, how is that true in other areas? How is it true that self-restraint actually helps us get to the essence of uh, things that we long and love and so um, we talked about marriage. I was like, you know, well, I'm married, and marriage comes with a ton of restraint, right? Comes with a ton of self-control. But in that self-control, you start to get to the essence over time, and through the difficulty of that self-control, uh, more of who you are and who the other person is, more of what love actually is, not what you first thought it was. Um, what about um, uh, silence and solitude? Like, that's something I try to do myself that, honestly, I struggle with because I am a I'm wired for um, accomplishment. I just want to check things off a list. I want to get it done and feel good that I've accomplished something. Um, anyone else in here like that? Um, I imagine in the room this size, there's at least two of us, right? Um, but there's probably more. But so, so stopping everything and turning everything off for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, sitting in my chair in my office and doing nothing for 10 minutes is the hard, one of the hardest things I do. Um, putting that self-control on myself of, accomplishing nothing, producing nothing, doing nothing. What it does when I sit in that chair, it actually just, uh, my mind floods. It's like bees buzzing around my head of everything that I want to get done. And all the things, if I just took that self-control off of me, I could get done, right? Self-control, limitations, help us get to the essence of things. Here's the thing, though, is if you've forgotten, self-control that my pagan friend is talking about is actually a fruit of the Spirit. We read that in Galatians 5, right? Fruit of the Spirit. If you're raised in church at all, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, right? You know this song? Yeah, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, let's be honest. Of all the fruit of the Spirit, self-control is the least likely to appear on a coexist bumper sticker, on a political campaign, on one of those, like, butt coffee first slogan t-shirts, right? Self-control is not going to be the thing that we put forward. It's not the thing that we want to anchor ourselves on or display to the world around us. Love, joy, peace, those things all feel good. We, we have no problem displaying those to everyone else around us or anchoring ourselves in those because they, they feel nice. But self-control, however, sounds puritanical. It sounds regressive. The thing is, self-control may be the one fruit of the Spirit that you and I and our culture most desperately need. Because the problem is, I don't think you can have the other fruit of the Spirit without it. Love without self-control lacks trust. Patience, or peace without self-control is unstable. Patience without self-control has limits. Goodness without self-control lacks integrity. Gentleness without self-control is reactive. You could play through the whole 
fruit of the Spirit and find that if you just remove that one Jenga piece, the fruit of the Spirit might just collapse. Now you're going through Paul's letter to Titus as a church. You may have missed the amount of times that self-control came up in chapter 2. Chapter 2 should be behind me here, Titus 2. It comes up with every single age group. Every single group in the church, Paul instructs them to practice self-control. It would seem that self-control is not limited to life stage or maturity. It's not something that you can get to later once you have accomplished X or Y. It's something that's expected of every life stage, um, every level of maturity of every Christian in the church. Paul says in, in Titus 2, he talks to older men, to, younger, to uh, older women, to younger women, and to younger men. Now, why would he instruct every single group in the church to practice self-control, to have self-control? And again, because of Galatians 5, 22. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit works in those who believe in and follow Jesus. It's part of God's nature that by the power of his Spirit, he wants to transform in us. We were made in God's image. Sin has broken that image. Part of sanctification is God restoring that image by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's work is to make you and me look more like Jesus. And part of that is self-control. That's why he would command all of the church to practice it. So what I want you to see this morning is that God's gift of self-control isn't merely functional. It's not merely functional. It's not a list of what you should do or what you shouldn't do. And it's not a cruel restraint It's not puritanical. It's not regressive. It's actually essential to what we long for in God and in others. So here's a roadmap for our time together. First is the nature of Christian self-control, the reality that self-control is difficult, and then the focus of self-control. It's eternal. The nature of Christian self-control, the reality that it is difficult, and then the focus of it. So first, the nature of it. So we're going to kind of I use Titus 2 as kind of connect it with where you guys are, what you've been looking at as a church, show you that it's expected of all Christians. It's, it's a fruit of the Spirit that's expected of all of us. Now let's kind of zoom out through different parts of the New Testament and look at what's the, what's the nature of, self, of Christian self-control. 1 Corinthians 9, um, in verse 19, Paul says, Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Before we jump into that phrase, I'm, I'm free from all, a servant to all. I want to look at two things real quick because there's kind of we can we can get more clarity on what Christian self-control is by looking at two things: an enemy of self-control and a counterfeit of self-control. Because those of you type A folks in here are probably all on board with self-control. You have any number of apps that you use to track your calories and your steps and measure your sleep, like I do. And so the topic of self-control is something you're like, well, okay, I can live there very comfortably. But others of you might feel defeated because you feel like you barely have the self-control to pay attention beyond this sentence. But let's talk about an enemy and counterfeit of self-control so that both groups can see what we're actually talking about. Let's look at this enemy and counterfeit, because if we're honest, these are the places where you and I live most often. First, the enemy of self-control is personal freedom as a highest value. Personal freedom as a highest value is actually an enemy of self-control. Personal freedom... Um, or individual freedom is practically a virtue in our society. We believe that nothing should interfere with with our ability to do what we want. 
What does this freedom look like in Orange County? That we should have no limitations. We should be able to express ourselves as, as we see fit, to have sex with who we want to have sex with, use our money the way that we want to use it, um, spend our time however we want to spend it, commit ourselves to nothing except for what feels good in the moment or what seems interesting. The freedom that we have to express ourselves, the freedom that maybe that the world might say to express myself, define myself, please myself, consume whatever I want is actually a right that I have. That's this personal freedom as a, as a highest value. The problem with that personal freedom as a highest value. Francis Schaeffer, who's a theologian uh, back in the middle of the last century, talked about how without transcendence, if there is no God who's over us, if there is no um, exterior objective uh, framework that shapes our love and our joy and our peace and our self-control. There is no objective authority over us. All that we're left with is hedonism, un, unrelinquished, unbridled personal expression and freedom. All we're left with is hedonism, which collapses in on itself because there's no way to mediate millions of individual desires trying to consume one another. If we're all free, and if we're all after just filling our own appetites, we're not looking out for each other. We're just trying to use one another. We're just trying to use you and you and you and everyone else in our lives who's part of the cast of our star show for our ends. And that sounds terrible. Personal freedom is not only the enemy of self-control, but it's the enemy of the other things that we truly want in life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness because we end up devouring we don't actually end up with those attributes, those gifts. There's a counterfeit to Christian self-control. That's the enemy. Um, personal freedom is the highest value, which we might look at and go, yeah, that's out there. I see that enemy out there, but it's in all of us in some way or another. We all participate in that in some way. But there's also a counterfeit, and this one's a little more slippery as well. Um, and that's self-control. <clears throat> there's a counterfeit to Christian self-control to self-control as the Bible describes it and as the gospel shapes it. And the counterfeit is self-centered self-control. What does self-centered self-control look like in Orange County? Well, just go to any gym, go to any school, go to any church, and you're going to see people exerting tremendous effort for their own ends. Hours upon hours in the gym, tutoring and late nights in schools, short-term mission trip after short-term mission trip building bank accounts out of fear or for status and not being able to be generous with your own family or with others. This kind of self-control and the self-restraint that actually is more about ourselves and what you get out of it than anything else. And our secularizing culture has taken what they would call puritanical religious fervor to the self-control of fasting and dieting and purity laws around food or speech. Our cancel culture is just religious uh, proclivities secularized. The self-control that is self-centered is a counterfeit. It's one that we shouldn't settle for. It's not what the Bible says is Christian self-control. It's a counterfeit to what we also truly want in life. Imagine if you loved someone who loved you uh, with a self-control that was self-serving. Imagine a joy that you kind of dipped your toe in because to go too much further would be relinquish, relinquishing some kind of self-control. 
Imagine a peace that you experienced that was based on some kind of self-centered restraint that um, really was more like a house of cards, that if you just let go of a little bit of restraint or what you were holding onto or white-knuckling through, all that peace would collapse. This kind of selfish self-control is a counterfeit to what true Christian self-control is. So what is the self-control that Paul's talking about? We looked at the enemy. We look at the counterfeit. Let's actually look now. What, what is Paul talking about? He says that he's free from all. What's Paul saying? He's, he's free from all, and he's made himself a servant to all. Though I'm free from all. Because of Paul's new identity in Christ, through faith in Jesus, Paul is free from his, he's, he's free from his standing with God, his relationship with God, depending on his performance for God. He's free from having to prove himself, justify himself, base his identity on what he can do, and instead he can actually enjoy the freedom that comes from not having to perform for anything. What he drinks or what he eats doesn't gain him or lose him anything before God. What religious rites he performs doesn't make God more loving or or inclined towards him. It actually, he's, he's free to enjoy the good gifts God has given him. He's free from all. Maybe another way to look at this freedom from all is to look at it from another ends of, of the other angle of judgment, because that's kind of what Paul's talking about here when we judge one another. And um, there's a theologian named Paul Zoll who wrote a, uh, a book called um, Who Will Deliver Us? And he talks about in there, how do we respond to judgment? And he's like, there's, there's common ways. If you, any of you guys live with a really uh, critical spouse, if you were raised in a home or one of your parents always told you it wasn't good enough, if you've, you, know, you work for a boss who's never happy, and you feel this kind of constant judgment, what this guy Paul's all is talking about is how do we respond to that? And what he says is there's kind of common ways. The first is that we try to appease it. We try to just live up to it and constantly deliver for it. But anyone who's tried to do that, you know that that's exhausting and it just builds resentment. Another way that we try to, to react to judgment is that we try to fight it. Um, we try to, to react against it, trying to show why, no, you're wrong and I'm right. And no, I can, I can prove that, that I'm worthy of uh, I'm, I'm unworthy of the criticism that you are, are leveling at me. Whatever our tactic, we try to fight it. Or some of you, uh, maybe you just run from it. You run from the critical people in your life and uh, the, the places and relationships where you feel judgment. And so if that's how we often respond to judgment of appeasing or fighting or running, maybe what Paul's talking about is the freedom to not respond to judgment. The freedom for the judgment not to impact us in a way that says all of my all of who I am as a person is based on what this person or these people think about me. That's the freedom of the gospel. Paul says, I'm free from all. You're called from freedom, brothers. Galatians 5.13 says, so there's another letter that Paul writes, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What's the nature of Christian self-control? It's others-oriented, very simply. Very simply, Christian self-control is a self-control that is um, utilized, practiced for the good of others. It is freedom limited out of love. Paul would say in this passage in 1 Corinthians, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, Paul says. He became like those he loved. He restrained himself in his freedom out of love and affection 
for those that he was ministering to. So maybe he ate kosher. Maybe he abided by their customs and expectations when he was with them. Maybe he would observe their, their practices without compromising the gospel, right? We know that he had Timothy circumcised, but not Titus. There were some times where he said, maybe we should consider how to uh, practice our self-control in a way to reach and serve these people. And maybe there's some times where we shouldn't compromise the gospel because we can't do so in order for them to see the gospel more clearly and to confront their own self-righteous self-justification. Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. In Acts, he quotes the pagans' poets in Athens. In Titus 1, he quotes a pagan poet to those in Crete. Both inside and outside the church, to the Jews and to those Gentiles, Paul became one of them. He practiced his self-control for the good of those that he loves. The nature of Christian self-control is that it's others-oriented. It's restraining freedom out of love. It's others-focused. What will help these people? What is best for them? What will bring them to a saving faith? What will increase their faith? I saw this really um, particularly and clearly. Um, My wife and I spent um, two years, um, almost two years, living in Mongolia when we first got married. She was in the Peace Corps, um, and I wanted to marry her, so (laughs) I moved to Mongolia. Um, And so we lived there um, for the first year and a half of our marriage. And while we were there, what you have to remember about Mongolia is it's sandwiched between um, China and Russia. Um, it's, so it's, it's crushed between two socialist, atheist, and one Buddhist-influenced nation. And the church there didn't exist until the Berlin Wall fell in about, you know, whatever, in the, what was that, the late 80s? Any history buffs? I'm forgetting right now. It's daylight savings. I don't know. When was it? 89, 89. So the first Christians came in, they were Swedish Lutherans who came into Mongolia in 89. So those who had been Christians in Mongolia the longest were Christians for what? I don't know, maybe 20 years. So it was like first Corinthians in Mongolia. It was really interesting. So one time we were there and there was a missions conference and one of the first church planters there came and he spoke. He was a Swedish guy in Mongolia. He's like six foot two. He looked like Egon from the Ghostbusters, right? But he was dressed in Mongolian dress. He was speaking the Mongolian language. He was telling jokes like a Mongolian would. I watched them respond to him like one that they loved. He had spent a decade plus, maybe two, in their country, utilizing his self-control out of love for others to learn their language, to know their customs, to walk with them and live amongst them in love. And I saw the effect of it there. Christian self-control is one that is others-oriented. These people knew that he loved them by his self-control. Cultural freedom and cultural self-discipline are all about me. Christian freedom is about exercising self-control to be a servant to Jesus and to others. And so God's gift of self-control isn't merely functional, like I said. It's not a cruel restraint. It's essential to what we long for in God and others. This self-control piece, Christian self-control, is essential to the relationships that, that we want in our lives that have love and joy, peace and patience and kindness with God and with one another. So the first distinction we see about uh, self-control, Christian self-control, is that it's others-oriented. But there's another important aspect that we often overlooked 
<clears throat> and that self-control is difficult. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 9, and he says, don't you know that all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Not a, not a perishable wreath, but an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what's interesting to remind, to remind yourself is that Paul's writing to Corinth, and Corinth was a city in Greece. And in this city in particular, they would have known what a marathon was. They would have known what the Olympics were. They would have known what boxing and wrestling were. He's using their cultural awareness to communicate to them about the reality of the Christian life. He's talking about this self-control in all things. The Christian life, he's, he's comparing this. As an athlete practices self-control in all things, there is a part of the Christian life that is similar, that we practice the self-control in all things. When it comes to an athlete, have you guys ever run a marathon? I know that I don't look like I'm built for running, but I sometimes like to run. I ran my first marathon and my last marathon this year. I'm not going to say first and not add the last because it's just true. I'm not doing that again. Um, it, was a, it was a trail marathon um, through um, uh, what's it, Griffith Park, and it was miserable. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was like 5,000 feet of elevation gain. It was raining, um, and it was lonely and just terrible. When you run a marathon, you spend months of your life watching what you eat, watching your training plan, just for, in some cases, three hours of, of running. In other cases, six hours of running, right? I have a friend um, who's an uh, MMA fighter, and he talks about how for you know, months, he spends counting his calories, training hours every single day, to prepare for 15 minutes in a ring. Maybe 15 minutes, right? Depending on how it goes. The self-control in all things for an athlete, there's a similarity in the Christian life that we practice self-control in, in, in all things. Paul says he doesn't run aimlessly. He doesn't box as one beating the air. He actually, he says he disciplines his body. And this discipline, again, see this, this picture here that I'm trying to paint for you of, of running a marathon that's miserable, or even using that picture of, the, of, a, of, a, of an MMA fighter, is like, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's painful, it's, it takes, it's grueling. And that's some descriptions of the Christian life. Many Christians are shocked when, when difficulty comes. We forget that Paul often uses physical uh, comparisons to the Christian life, whether it's boxing, whether it's a farmer, whether it's a soldier, whatever it is, Paul likes to use these, these pictures that are visceral and difficult. But many Christians are surprised when difficulty comes. We get surprised when it's hard. And we forget that we're not just fighting human opponents or even our own bodies, we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're fighting the world that, that tells us that we are the center and not God. And Paul says that we have to renew our mind and to break strongholds and win arguments and all that takes self-control. The whole, the whole context of the fruit of the Spirit is fighting against the flesh in Galatians. In Romans 7 and 8, the, the, Paul is contrasting the flesh and the Spirit and fighting against the power of both. And then we're also fighting the devil who uses both the world and the flesh against us. 
And he's a liar and an accuser and a murderer. And we're still surprised when it's difficult. And we forget that in the difficulty, our self-control is maybe the common thread that builds endurance through it. We don't take these kind of challenges seriously. We think we can manage them with some kind of self-centered self-control. And Christian abuses of selfish freedom and selfish self-discipline are everywhere. And in fact, my story and many of your stories illustrate the self-deception of sin that we think we can manage it. One pastor uses this picture of, um, of a lion. Apparently there was a, you know those uh, TV show ads like, you know, hurry up, call now before the software ends, whatever, what are those, like infomercials? That's what they're called, infomercials. Again, daylight savings. There was a, apparently there was an infomercial where there was a lion on stage and there was a woman who's trying to sell some kind of shampoo in front of a lion. And as she's trying to sell the shampoo, the lion like paws at her and swipes at her and begins to attack her before, you know, the trainer who's off screen restrains him in some way. This pastor tells the story, uses the comparison that oftentimes we think sin and the flesh and the devil and the world are a line that we can comfortably be near and not be affected by. We can manage it. We can control it. We can, we can, we can use our own self-reliance and self-discipline um, instead of the others-oriented, Christ-reliant self-control that the Bible gives us. You cannot get around the language in the New Testament that connects the difficulty of the Christian life with self-control. That's what Paul's doing here. The Christian life is hard. And in the same way athletes have self-control, Christians have self-control. But we also know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And moving through the suffering of self-control produces the very things that you want the most. Because if suffering produces ultimately hope, I got to also imagine that it produces love, joy, peace, and patience and kindness as well over time when you're not seeing it happen. What is it? Uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, a, a German poet, talked about um, how uh, some, when you don't have the answers to the questions, one day uh, you, you live your way into the answer, is how he put it. Um, I thought it was a beautiful way to put it. Like we, we often try to just constantly hunker down on why, 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 and forget that oftentimes the answer to the why comes when we're not asking it as we're just living forward and we live into the answer. So the self-control, I'm imagining, as you guys are living it in the midst of difficulty in your life, challenges that are as painful and hard as those Paul illustrates here, that it's important to be reminded that these work Self-control in the midst of challenge, even when you can't see it, still works the things that you most long for. And so whatever challenge you're in in your, your marriage or your parenting or your work or whatever it is and you can't see, you said, you know, Nick, I've been, I've been working really hard and I've been trying to be others-oriented. I've been trying to restrain my freedom for the good of the people in this church. I've been trying to restrain my, my freedom and, and have um, self-discipline for the good of my work and my marriage and everything else. I just can't see anything good coming from it yet. Anyone there? And one of the pictures of this athletic, one of, one of the aspects of this athletic picture is the reminder that in the midst of self-control, you often can't see the outcome. And yet we're still called to it. So here's a fresh one. Yesterday, my wife and I get in a fight. 
Um, so those of you familiar with the Enneagram, we both have a lot of eight. So you can imagine what fights are like, right? Um, it's two people who think they're really right and want to convince the other person of their rightness and at our worst demand the other person hear their rightness. There's a difference there, right? And in, this, in the midst of this fight um, where I'm trying to lovingly help my wife see the rightness of my argument and she's um, responding uh, with her words in a way. That, so I'm probably pressuring and pushing and not hearing her opinion on this matter. And she's responding with uh, words that are hurtful um, to try to push me back away from her. Um, I, again, as kind of a type A uh, man, doesn't want to feel weak, kind of throw a little fit, and I'm like, fine, I'm going on a run, because that'll motivate me, right? And so I kind of put my headphones on, I walk out of the house and I'm walking down. I don't even say anything. I just walk out the door, I'm walking down the sidewalk. I'm like, God, this sucks. I'm like, I hate fighting with my wife. I hate feeling distant. And in that moment, I was like, just turn around, go back, tell her you're going to go on a run. Like, do the things you don't want to do. Tell her you're going to go on a run. Ask her if she needs anything from you before you go on the run. Ask her if you can talk about this when you get back. The self-control in the moment was honestly hard because it was dying to, it, it was dying to the effect of the selfish actions that I wanted to hurt her with, right? I wanted, to, I wanted her to feel the distance that I felt by kind of storming out of the house. And the self-control was going, no, okay, I don't know how this is going to resolve. I don't know if I'm going to be right. And I don't know how this argument's going to turn out, but I'm going to turn around anyway in the midst of it. And I'm not the hero of the story. Like, whatever. You know I blew that, and it was not great. But in the midst of difficulty, when you can't see the outcome, Christians are still called to practice an others-oriented self-control. And so if you're in the midst of that, I'm not saying that to go, keep going, try harder. I'm just saying, keep going, because one day you're going to live into the answer. One day you're going to see the fruit of the self-control come to full bloom. So how do you fight? How do you have this kind of self-control? How do you endure? How do you cultivate this kind of this others-oriented self-control that's resilient? There is one more aspect of this grace-empowered self-control that we see in this passage. In addition to self-control being others-oriented and difficult, it has an eternal focus. The self-control has an eternal focus. Do you, not, do you not know, Paul says, all runners, in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you might obtain it. Run, you, in this room, King's Cross, run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. We're going to have the Olympics this year or next year? What is it? I just keep hearing it's going to get canceled, so I stop paying attention to when it's going to be. What is it? Next year? This year? This year. We're going to have Olympics this year. People are going to run for gold medals, silver medals, bronze medals. That will perish. Soldiers will go to war. They will get silver stars, bronze stars, medals of valor. They all perish. You run for an imperishable wreath. He says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline myself lest I should be disqualified. Self-control has an eternal 
focus. This is countercultural in an age of immediate gratification, where the new and the novel are prized over the old and the tested, where the, where the news and social media have trained us that everything is urgent, but almost nothing is truly important. We're being raised on apps and Amazon have trained us to expect solutions to be immediate and on our terms. The reminder that self-control has an eternal focus and not an immediate focus is one that we all need to hear. Because as Christians, we're, we, are, we will allow the world around us to train us. Maybe like the book that, that Alyssa is going to have you women read, How Is Our Phone Shaping Us? It's shaping your view of the outcome or the focus of your self-control. You think the focus of your self-control is the immediate response that you should get, the immediate uh, gratification you should get from it. But the Christian self-control is, no, it's for, a, it's for a prize that you will receive only in eternity. Paul Tripp says that our sight is dimmed by the tyranny of the urgent, by the siren call of success, by the seductive beauty of physical things, by our inability to admit our own problems, and by the casual relationships within the body of Christ that we mistakenly call fellowship. And so we don't run with an eternal focus. We don't practice self-control that's others-oriented, that is looking towards a prize that we will one day win. Instead, we look at all of these temporal, immediately gratifying things, and we place our focus there, rather than aiming our self-control at the right place. And if we're looking at anything when we have self-control, if we're setting goals, we often confuse mile markers for the finish line. Um, when Kim and I lived in Seattle, we lived by a lake called Green Lake, um, and I was not a runner at the time, and maybe some of you guys are like this, but I like to set short-term goals. And so we would run, and I would say, baby, just tell me where, where are we running? And she'd be like, that light pole. Okay, I get to the light pole. Now where are we running? That tree. Okay, run to the tree. Like, it wasn't run around the lake, right? It was run to these things that are within eyesight. And there's a part of setting goals that's good and valuable. But as Christians, our ultimate goal is not these little mile markers. Our ultimate goal is this prize that we will inherit as we practice this self-control, um, this others-oriented self-control through difficulty. Our locus is in eternity. Paul would direct our gaze to the end point that truly matters, not ourselves, not the immediate, not even to death, because we will all cross that mile marker but to Jesus and eternity with him. That's the finish line. The only thing that can quench our voracious appetites for fulfillment, the only thing that can draw our eyes up from the mirror or up from our own navels is seeing Jesus clearly. The only way that this kind of self-control is even possible is to see the grace that we've been given by the Father in Jesus. In C.S. Lewis's books, the Narnia Chronicles, there's this excerpt that says, and so at last they got on the move, Lucy went first, biting her lip and trying not to say all the things that she thought of saying to Susan, but she forgot them when she fixed her eyes on Aslan. Lucy and Susan are in a fight, and Lucy, like many of us, is just storing up all the arguments to use like a machine gun ready to fire, locked and loaded. I'm ready to just lay it on this person. And it says, Lucy bit her lip, trying not, trying not to say all the things she thought of saying to Susan, but she forgot them when she fixed her eyes on Aslan. The only thing that quenches our voracious appetites for self-fulfillment, the only way that this kind of others-oriented self-control is possible is to see the grace that we've been given by the Father in Jesus. Think about the Father's self-control. Think about when you have a bad day. 
or you don't sleep well, or something doesn't go right for you? What is your inclination in your treatment towards those around you? Do you let them know that you've had a bad day? Right? Some, of, some of us are overt and loud, and everyone knows that we've had a bad day. And others of us are cold and introverted and withdrawn, and everyone's like, why are they so quiet? I had a really bad day. Our self-control gets unrestrained, and we just snap on everyone around us. Parents, think about when your kids are losing it, and your self-control goes out the window because they just need to get in line and take a nap, for God's sake. The father could have wiped everybody out. The father could have hit reset like he did with Noah. Instead, the father put all of that wrath upon his son. He limited the scope of his anger for the love of those that he would save. Think about freedom limited out of love for others, that Jesus was completely free, Philippians 2 says, but he made himself a servant. It says he, was, he, had the, he had all of the rights, all of the power of God, that he, in the nature of God, didn't count that as something to be grasped. You know what's amazing about that picture? Man, again, from that, that lens of judgment, that picture that Paul is using is one of a king on a throne with a scepter, that he didn't hold on to his rights as king, but instead he laid them down. He didn't count it as something to be grasped, but he laid them down and made himself nothing. His self-control actually looked like serving. For those who are only living for themselves and their selfish freedom or selfishly religious self-control, Christ made himself nothing. He gave up all that was due to him for those who want everything that they think is owed to them. Think about the difficult, man, the obedient, self-controlled life of Christ. Enduring opposition at every verse of the Gospels. Obedient for you and for me in every little detail of his life. And self-controlled to the point of death, even death on the cross. For those that the law had crushed, the tired, the burned out, for those who have tried to white-knuckle and justify themselves, whatever it is right now, this morning, that you are trying to say, I can do it. You know what the good news is? Christ did it for you. In his self-controlled, others-oriented life, he actually lived the perfect life that you are desperately trying to hold on to through self-reliant self-control. In this eternally focused peace, Paul talks about the winner being given an imperishable wreath. And Jesus wore a crown of thorns, mocked as a loser, so that we could gain an imperishable reward. For all of us who try to win by our effort and our self-reliance, for all of us who try to win by our competency and our abilities and our self-control in those things, Christ wore a crown on a cross and was mocked as an absolute loser for you and for me, so that we could win a prize that could never be taken away. And this is grace, because this is how God has rescued you. This is how God has rescued each and every single one of you in this room, limiting himself out of love at an infinite cost and difficulty to himself for the eternal benefit of you. The love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and self-control that you are looking for can be known most perfectly at the cross of Christ. So may you and I taste and see and be shaped by that. It is what we need the most. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. 
we'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.